Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DeQuisto Series podcast. Coming at you from the road. We are in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, doing the great American Outdoor Sports Show. So, man, if you are in the area, if you planned on heading to the show, feel free to swing by the booth. Look for us. We're in the Archery Hall. And come check out some of the custom gear products. On the subject of shows, we are just a few short weeks away from officially releasing all the information and sign up for the Roadshow Circuit this summer. We got some big things planned. The Mobile Hunter Roadshow is truly one of a kind. This isn't your typical expo with a bunch of brands piled in trying to sell you gear. This is a show for the Mobile Hunter and the guy who is looking to elevate his game to the next level. I've been attending hunting trade shows, deer and turkey events, expos, all sorts of these type of things for as long as I can remember. I literally grew up giving demonstrations of tree stands on display poles with my old man. The consumer show and the hunting expo was a big part of my life. As I honed my hunting skill and continued to push and pursue goals of mine in the timber, what I loved most is this always transferred to the face-to-face -face personal connection that I get with people at trade shows. I love nothing more than bullshitting about hunting, talking tactics, and trying to help people out. And in the past few years, with all this COVID craziness, I wasn't sure what was going to come of the trade shows. And this sort of this sort of scared me a little bit because a big part of my year is connecting with people. And the year they canceled everything, I said to myself, you know what? Screw it. You do your own show. This is when I thought of the concept of the traveling roadshow, the mobile hunters roadshow. Something that myself, my family company, my close friends and staff have been adapting and using for long before this recent boom of the mobile style. I started this thing because I wanted to give back information to not only my customer base, but all mobile hunters and hunters who had the desire to be more proactive and needed to find a different way because what they're doing wasn't working out for them. One of the greatest things about this event is you're not only learning from me, you're learning from a group of guys in which I handpicked specifically for each location. The Roadshow team changes for every event. This is specifically based on the location in which the event is held. Our Roadshow team of experts come from all over the country, and the one consistent factor is these guys are constantly getting it done no matter where you're hunting, down south, the Midwest, the East Coast, you will be able to find a corresponding Roadshow team member that can relate to your exact situation. I started the Mobile Hunter Roadshow because I wanted to connect with the hunter. I don't want to sell a guy a product. I want to teach him how to use that product correctly and how to be more efficient even if he isn't using my product. And that was the whole concept of the Mobile Hunter Roadshow. You come, you attend, you learn from saddle hunters to tree stand hunters, hybrid hunters, ground hunters, traditional archers, everyone. 
there's something for you to learn no matter what your skill level. Even myself, every show, all the people I talk to, all the staff, and getting to see everyone's intricate setups, it gets my wheel spinning. And I'm constantly changing, constantly trying to be the most efficient hunter I can be. And I think everybody can take a piece from that. So whether you think you got your setup completely dialed in and it'll never change, that might quickly change after attending one of these events. The smallest little mod to a setup or the process in which you're hanging or scouting can make the world of a difference. And those little highlights can be found at the Roadshow. The Mobile Hunter Roadshows start off with a Mobile Hunting 101. And this is a discussion on my personal philosophy to the mobile style of hunting, how I approach it, how long I've been doing it, and where I've seen success. I also go over my team overview, why I picked the specific people that are at this event, a little bit of background, and an intro to all the different things we will cover throughout the entire day. My hand-picked roadshow team will then introduce themselves, where they come from, their specific style, and a sneak peek at their personal setups. Next is the line overview. This is where we specifically highlight a few different products from the various brands that support the roadshow, and we discuss the importance of key pieces of gear. From this, we transition over to a speaker setup highlight section to where each speaker will go through in great detail their exact setup, specific mods to said setup, and their preferred method to hanging and hunting. Seeing this will give you a big insight on which speaker you may be most interested in, the combination of products they're using, and give you a little bit more to work with later on through the day when we get hands-on. All throughout the day, we hold random shooting events, raffles to win prizes and contests. So do not forget your bow. If you're looking to win some badass prizes, you're going to want to be up on your shot. Another key point of the Mobile Hunter Roadshow is the Roadshow Q&A. This is a complete roundtable discussion podcast that is recorded with all the speakers as well as the entire audience. And we get in to all of the attendees' questions. At the beginning of each event, we set out a notebook and we encourage all the attendees to write down any questions they have about mobile hunting, whether that be scouting, hanging stands, map questions, product questions, anything that they have. This is an awesome way to give the opportunity to attendees to pick the brains of some of our experts on points that they may be having trouble with. New for this year, we will actually be implementing a specific mapping segment to these shows in which we will break down e-scouting properties, choosing new properties, utilizing mapping apps to make you more efficient in your mobile expeditions, and identifying some key areas of benefit without stepping foot on the ground. The bread and butter of the Mobile Hunter Roadshow takes place in the Tree Stand Hang Workshop. This is a specifically designed training session to answer all your questions on mobile tree stand setups. During the tree stand hang workshop, 
I will run through the proper way to hanging stands and sticks, common misconceptions about this process, tips and tactics to make it easier, and all different configurations of mobile hunting gear and equipment. We will have key speakers on specific topics such as harness choice and what harnesses to use, how to run those harnesses. We dive into specific saddle hunting segments, self-filming tactics, strategy and efficiency for ascending the tree and descending, tactics to capitalize on stand position, the importance of permanent setups versus all mobile, and a new hybrid style of hunting that is becoming increasingly popular. By attending the roadshow, you also can take advantage of some pretty great deals provided by the companies supporting the roadshow. All the attendees have the option to take advantage of our roadshow specials and deals provided by the roadshow supporting brands. Purchase your products, be first on the list to receive new products, and get your order in for the upcoming season. And we sealed the deal off with the Roadshow Relay, a one-of-a-kind team tree stand hang relay event for the opportunity to win some huge prizes. And one of the best things about the Roadshow is afterwards, kick back and hang out with the crew. Every event we hold, we camp afterwards, and you're more than welcome to pitch a tent, hang by the fire, cook some food, and hang out. I hope this gives you a little better idea what you can expect at a roadshow. All this information will be hitting our website in the next couple of weeks. It'll be www.mobilehunterroadshow.com, and you can get a lot more specifics on location and exact dates for these events as soon as we're live, and we will keep you informed on when that hits. In the spirit of discussing the roadshow, I'm going to send us in to a roadshow Q&A segment from last year's circuit. I hope you enjoy. There you have it. That is really getting jacked up. All right, I'm going to go randomly through here. So uh, this is a good question. Do you believe in the October lull and why? I, I particularly like this question because I have killed a lot of deer over the years in the quote-unquote October lull. I don't think it's a thing. I think the people who, or the concept of the October lull was created by people who were hunting the wrong areas in that time of October. Everybody looks at hunting and they look at what they expect to see and action they expect to have. And they always base it on rut activity and they base it on late October and bucks getting squirrely. And the fact is, there's no October lull. The deer just aren't rutting yet or anywhere close to rutting. So you can have, in my opinion, the best hunting there is early season and through that October lull. It's just not going to be with bucks raking trees on field edges. So um, I've, I, yeah, I, I probably have over, over 16 deer that are taken in the October lull. They're taken in thick timber deep in the woods, close to bedding, um, and I, yeah, it's just, I, I think it's complete BS. So we'll let, we'll let everybody else kind of chime in, chime into this. Anybody got any uh, particular things they, how they would like to answer that question? I think it goes hand in hand with the quote unquote, like 
that buck went nocturnal on me. It's kind of the same thing. Every deer is somewhere in daylight. You just have to be in the right location to make that happen. Like Cody said, it's generally going to be closer to bedding. Um, October is my, my favorite time to hunt, especially the first couple weeks of October. That's when I kill 95% of my deer. So I'm in the same boat. I, I would agree. I think we, we talked a little bit about it earlier with like that getting so zoned in on like those summer deer and focusing on like all your scouting and these guys, they, they just focus on these deer in fields and, and moving and shaking and all of like what they're doing during the summertime and their, their habit. And then they transition to their fall pattern, which is completely different, whether it's an entire different area, a mile or two miles away, or whether it's, you know, just further into the timber, closer to bedding, you know, they're going to move, they're going to shift. And you know, that, I think that was like Cody said, that was an excuse for guys hunting the wrong areas because they're hunting that summer pattern still and you can't count on those deer being back in that same area until the rut when they're realistically anywhere <laughs> so it makes a it makes a, a big difference you know being able to key in on october that's you know that's, i second both jake and cody and the fact that that's my favorite time to be in the woods i think that's just when people lose their deer yeah that you coming out of that transition and they're going out of bachelor groups and yeah. they're kind of getting on their own and it ain't that he ain't moving as much as he was. He's just not where you thought he was. Yeah. And, and you're looking for him in the same places. So you just haven't found him again yet. And then and then people kind of, that's such a myth, or I guess the October Laurel thing, is people use that as a crutch not to go. So then they're like, ah, oh, shit, it's October 13th. I ain't going. You know what I mean? I ain't going on October 10th and said it's 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And then, so therefore... You know, I got a lot of buddies that won't hunt till November 1st because they just don't think the hunting's any good. Mm -hmm. I kill most of my deer way before November 1st, usually. <laughs> and uh, and then my lips stuck out after November 1st if I ain't seeing them. So I, I think it's kind of a myth. So it got coined back in the 80s, and all these riders jumped on it because they weren't successful. Mm -hmm. Then it even got worse in the 90s when you had the TV guys going to outfitters. So they would hunt early, first couple of days of October, late September. Then they wouldn't hunt because they wasn't successful. Then towards the end of October, they started seeing deer and killing deer. Mm -hmm. So um, that just they kept pushing it, and the next thing you know, everybody's believing it. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason is, is like they've already stated, uh, they're in, they're not traveling very far from their bedding, so you got to get in tight. Most people were setting, you know, traditional pinches, field edges, uh, scraping areas, whatever, and they just weren't getting in and hunting down a deer. Mm -hmm. They were just hunting areas for deer. I have more of a November law than I do an October law. Yeah. That, that where you're hunting that deer and he's not, you can't find him because he's not there anymore. He's yep. running down. You know, the, yeah. the October thing is more of a, you just, like I said, especially if he's not a dominant buck, uh, you know, he may be a 160-inch buck you're hunting, but that don't mean he's dominant. Mm -hmm. And if uh, everybody's getting a little aggressive and he's timid, he may have to move a couple ridges over because he's about to get ready to get his hind end kicked, you know. So you just kind of got to find out where he's at. That's a good point, man. Deer don't know that they got a big rack it's all it's, it's all personality so i mean i've seen i've seen big bucks get ran off by tiny bucks and it's all it's it's just it's a it's like the you know specific deer um but yeah so i think that pretty much i mean i don't know if byron if you want to cover anything but we're no nah, let's move on i have yeah. i've shot the new zero who uh really can, do you mind guys guys mind if i ask who asked that question you did awesome question man you get a wind bottle i'm gonna give you a wind bottle and I'm going to touch base on these wind bottles real quick. Um, so I'd like to see a show of hands who's, who actively checks their wind 
Winter hunting. Like, just everybody doing it, everybody's keeping an eye on that. It's, it's better to see. A lot better yeah. than some of the, the, yeah. the previous. You guys are you guys are head and heels about um, some of the other groups. If you haven't seen this product, <laughs> it's a pretty cool product that we got through Custom Gear. What this essentially is, is I think it's a hunter's lifeline. So, um, things that I've always had with me since the beginning that I kind of coming up hunting was taught about was it was always about wind direction wind direction was everything and along with that one thing that was always on my person since I was 10 years old was a compass and there's a lot of people who think they can do without a compass or think they know what direction they're you're looking or and I man everybody's been turned around and everybody it's unless you have a compass and you're actually looking at it you probably really don't know what exactly north is or what what direction is exactly you're looking at. You know, it could be just, you could be just a hair off or you could be way off, right? Even phones. I've had my phone with the whole sinking deal and the figure eight and the maps. Even that can get, can get confusing, looking at an aerial, looking at your supposed location that you can literally watch the dot do this when you're looking at the map. Everybody ever see that? Well, how the hell are you supposed to really get an accurate depiction of your wind at the tree you are exactly at without knowing the actual direction? And when you start getting to the point where you're, where you're playing that wind to a hard cut and you need to know exactly where it goes, you need a compass and you need something that's going to tell you what the wind's going. This awesome little, little guy combines all three things that I've, I've taken and that I've learned to hunt with in one. So... On the top section, you have your standard, your, your powder substance that you can check check wind with. You know, you can fill that with uh, baby powder, just, you know, scent-free cornstarch, any any sort of thing like that just to get that, that stiff wind direction. And on the other side, under the compass, is a little pouch that you can store some milkweed in there or cotton balls or just any synthetic type of cattail, any, you know, whatever you want to use to check your thermals. Not only wind direction, but your thermals. So... Now, in this one little device, you know, you've eliminated those, those, those few things, and you have it all right here. So I can literally take some milkweed out, drop it, see exactly what the thermals are doing, exactly where it's pulling due to this compass direction. And anybody who's not actively checking their wind needs to start doing that, and this is a really good way to do that. So if you had one week to hunt, what week would it be? Any week jumping on to you guys? So for me, it's it's first week, and reason being is I can catch those bucks the first week of October or the last week of September, depending on season, in some sort of pattern. So I can keep it, I can keep tabs on them. I know they're going from a strict bedding to food pattern, and I can flank them. I can get in there and get close. Um, they're not pressured. You know, we have in Ohio the majority of out-of-state hunters end up hunting between the last week of October and the first two weeks of November. And nobody's even looking at that first week. I mean, it's it's basically untouched deer at that point. So you have a lot of land to yourself, and you can make a lot of moves. Okay. Uh, mine <clears throat> depends on weather. Um, if I had, you know, six inches of snow and highs in the 20s, it would be, you know, first week of January. But uh, other than that, probably it would be the last week of October. Um, I like uh, getting in on tied on bucks that I know of. They're still home. Um, and I can set up on them. They're still, they're spunky. They're ready to bust loose. Uh, they will move a little bit more, get late, uh, get get back to their bedding later, and they'll move a little bit more earlier in the evening. So that would be mine. 
I don't think uh, my game is as, as tactical as your guys, I think, for that early half. So I'm going to go like November 8th-ish plus, you know, seven days or five days, whatever this uh, week consists of. And I think uh, the reason behind that, I feel like a lot of times that first week of November, one, pressure's high, but uh, tend to get a warm front, I feel like, the, those first couple days of November, it seems, over the years. And then uh, I do have a, a Hail Mary where I've killed two bucks on, like, November 14th on a certain ridge. So, so I, I feel those does are kind of patterned at this point that it seems to be a hot one, seems to be there that time. So, so that's my get a later half of that week. I think I'll just sit the best pinch on that, that ridge. I think if, it, if it's my farm and it's, it's food plots I got out and it's known food sources that I've, I'm going to say the first week I'm with him because, like you say, most people say, ah, oh, it's mosquitoes, it's hot, I ain't hunting. And, you know, deer don't care about that. They're eating and they're someplace and they're real patternable. If it was someplace I was going on a trip, uh, it'd probably have to be like last week of October to where you could go. And if you go too early, there's no sign there really even to read. I mean, you're just reading, you know. If you go there, if it was a trip, that's when they're making the sign. You know, that, that last week of October, they're on their feet, they're making the sign, and you could you could come into a place, and, and I guess it's fresh sign, easier to scout that last, you know. But but in my farm over here, I, I, I need that first week. <laughs> I've been waiting too long for it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm probably going to, and I want to preface this by saying, like, I hunt in the south, so hunting down there, our 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 deer move all over the place. So you might have a county where deer don't actually actually start like scraping and rubbing and doing a lot of like leaving sign until November. You might have another county where they're rutting in October 25th. You know, so for me, you know, I think it's going to depend a lot like Heath said on weather. You know, if, if we get a cool front that comes in in October, then that's my that's where I want to be, but by and large, the second and third week of October are my favorite times to be in the woods because usually they're just starting to lay down enough sign and they're still home like Heath was saying that I can pinpoint those deer based on like where they are you know what their travel routine is most of the time like that that buck is like he's he's in a certain thicket or a certain spot and he's taking a specific route and he's leaving sign along that route and I can kind of like try to key in incrementally sit after sit and get closer to him over time Tony I think I need you to tell the truth though what do you mean Whatever week your wife's okay with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Man, I got to say, uh, uh, shout out to her. She has put up with some shit over the years. Um, she is a... She, She's got one of those uh, one of those T-shirts that says what does it say like Whitetail Widow or something, um, and and it's true, man. I mean, but we've been together for a long time, and she knows she knows that when October rolls around, she it, it it's been so long that she's just like well. You know, dad's not going to be here too much, guys. Like, you know, so that's just kind of how it is. But um, <laughs> with that being said, um, man, I, I hate this question because I can never pick. Because I love I love all times of year in different ways. Like, literally every single time of the year, I and I'm constantly changing up the strategy. And I have to say, though, that if this is about, like, specifically – killing deer if it's about being successful in harvesting a deer and that only i gotta go with, and well then i guess that would depend on where you're where you're at so like thinking of the midwest it would have to be as late as possible because 
those deer get into a situation where they have to do things due to the weather like especially when you get those cold temps and heavy snow it really starts to funnel these deer down to certain to what they can eat what they can reach you know um it so i mean i if if we're going if we're going like treacherous weather or like i can pick any temps or something i'd probably go last week of the season um because it's just i mean if it was about strictly killing deer because um it's easy to just go into a place if it's cold if there's snow you can really see where these deer are, are hoarded up and a lot of times you can pinpoint very like rare food sources like kill numerous deer eating just hoarded up on locust pods very late just be just because like that's all they're that's all they're getting at all the stuff is picked over they're in the timber held up deep snow is keeping them from going elsewhere and you can really kind of sneak in there and, and use that to your advantage so I'd, I'd probably i'd probably go around around that area but you can't it's so hard to pick uh who asked that question wind bottle just was that number two? Is that the same yeah, guy? Oh, I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Here's a good one for you Ohio boys. Let's see. Uh, best places to scout and locate buck bedding on very steep terrain early to mid-October. So my, my take to that, I began season, let's say in January, I'll e-scout and I'll, I'll pick out leeward ridges. So in Ohio, we have a predominant west wind or a southwest wind. So I'll pick out ridges that face either to the north or to the east. And uh, throughout the spring, I'll put boots on the ground in all those areas. I'm looking for very specific things. So I'm looking for ridges that run north-south or east-west. And the, the, the leeward side of that ridge will have like little points that jut out. Those points normally have pretty good bedding on them. So when I, when I find those points, I'm trying to find a ridge that has the most amount of those as possible. You know, I want to find a ridge that has like, let's say four or five different points like that, that all jut out into a bottom. I'll put cameras in that bottom on preferably like a hub scrape and get inventory of what's in the area. So I'll do that in, you know, 10 or 15 different spots in Ohio and try to fine tune two or three big bucks. And uh, early season, I'll catch them on those same patterns. So. I'll know where they're bedded, I'll have the beds pre-scouted, I'll know what the destination food source is, and then I'll try to find the first food source on the way to that. So it could be a briar patch, it could be a lone white oak tree on a flat halfway down the ridge that he's bedded on, it could be a lot of different things. It's really, that comes down to, to hunting the hot sign at that point, and that's one thing that we all covered earlier as well. You know, Cody is kind of like, he's not running a lot of cameras and he's not really doing pre-scouting, but he's going in, finding that hot sign and killing on it. I'm trying to kind of do the same thing, locate a buck, go in with no preconceived notions of where you want to end up in that area, but follow the sign in. You know, if you walk in 20 yards and there's a hammered scrape and there's a bunch of rubs and there's a bedding ridge 80 yards away set up there, you don't have to go a mile deep, but keep going until you find that sign and push it to the nearest bedding that you know of. Yeah, a lot of people overlook the, they overlook close stuff just with the mentality of trying to get as deep as they possibly can and sometimes you're sometimes you don't need to go that deep sometimes it's not that complicated um and a lot of times you're overthinking um but it is important to like to be scouting and to be looking for that stuff to capitalize on because if you're not looking for it you're never going to find it um byron you want to give, give any insight on some on some on some steep terrain here um i would say like a, a visual advantage tends to be 
uh, a key aspect of a lot of those those beds uh, that I find or uh, shed locations as well. I, I know Nathan and Heath, you guys spend time in hill country, but it seems like if I find sheds in a bed, it generally has a very good visual advantage most of the time. Um, but everything Jake's just shared is pretty mirrored by myself. Yeah, around here, bedding is a tricky, tricky thing. Uh, several things play into it, I think, but the one thing you got to remember around here is, in any place, you know, a, a deer don't have to bed here and then have to walk 400 yards to eat. A lot of times around here, a deer, if there's a white oak flat and it's hammered and it's, uh, you know, uh, especially a ridge or the little points that he's talking to where he can, usually around here it is the thermals change so much and everything swirls, it will be a visual advantage. You won't ever catch a buck bedding down in something, you know. He'll be up to where he can see things coming, but if he's laying in between three white oak trees and he's going to get up and move 15 feet before he starts eating, that bed to feed things out the window you know what i mean so it's around here i've had deer that uh, i remember in 08 uh, brian actually found the deer for me uh well there was some stuff going on i didn't know was you know what was going on in the next flat down i was hunting a ridge and i said man will you pop up a climber down there you remember this i said will you pop up a climber down there and just just help me out here i said i've got this buck i was hunting it had a about a seven or eight inch drop tine i was really wanting to kill it and i said i just it had only it seemed like it was deep into the season but it was like i ended up killing him like october 8th but like i really thought i'd kill him that first week because i knew exactly where he was eating didn't really know where he was bedding but i had a camera you know where he was eating and uh anyways he goes over the over the ridge there and sets up way off from where and he comes back and he's like man it's so thick down in there he's like and he starts telling me he's like i'm just seeing legs he said i seen some antler you know right and i'm like well where was they they had to be bedded like right there i mean you know they weren't going and so the next weekend uh, he said you need it and he told me where need to hang the stand he said there's a little maple or something so the next weekend actually i skipped work it was on a wednesday it wasn't a weekend i lied so i seen the wind was going to get right for for that again and i come home and i went down there and hung a hung a set and i, I told him i i said i hope you don't get mad you know i'm gonna go down in there on wednesday he's like you know hey i told you so he was right man i, I just the I would say I had to have gotten the stand within 75 yards of the deer. I mean, on it, he had to be. I mean, that's what it had to be. And any other, if a guy would have went down in there, you know, Brian scouted it from a distance. And look, if I would have went down in there, clocked around, you know, looked from looking for sign, and then went back, got my sticks, come back, hung a stand, you know, no way he would have put up with that. But just that, you know, the getting down in there, being quiet, getting up, and because I shot him, eating in the white oak acorns at like five o'clock so how far could he have been you know what i mean and uh i honestly believe that deer's daylight movement was 150 yards you know just from here to here and uh like i said around here they don't this bean field and stuff i mean this looks pretty impressive but this is ain't really the uh this is not the majority of what the hunting is around here you know where you've got big ag fields and stuff the majority is is you know the hill country and stuff around here and it, it's tough to it's tough to get in on those beds i have a question off of that um so could you have snuck in on that deer in the morning maybe the right pressure or something before he got back to bed was that a like i said around here i mean you, you what you got to look at in morning hunting and, and if you find morning spots are so hard to find 
And a lot of times you almost cop out from hunting because you're like, darn where do I go anymore? I, I can get, I can find you 12 evening spots. I can find you two morning spots. You know what I mean? You, you When you get a morning spot, a lot of times even, and I'll do it too, if the wind ain't right, you just won't go. And that's, when I was telling the story about me killing that buck there this uh, past year on a, on a hanging hunt set is because I literally had like 17 stands hung, hung last year and the morning of October 18th did not have one of them I get in because this screwy east wind come through and I, well I had two but of course Tanner my father-in-law was in them but uh, so I just had to go find a different section of the farm where I would just be okay and tucked away just to get in the woods so the, the worst thing is around here is they will they're on their feet at 8 o'clock you know, but at six o'clock they're a hundred yards from that same place, or maybe in the same place. You know, I had, I had a buck. It's uh, in seventeen, a big, you know, one hundred and fifty type eight point that I was hunting, and he was in my food plot every morning at eight o'clock. But he was there at six thirty too. I mean, food plot, and there's no way there was. Just, it was impossible. You couldn't have got into him. And uh, I remember telling Brian, I said, I have to get up on this big steep ridge and somehow cut him off to where he's going. So in that scenario, I got a couple hundred yards. He was only moving a couple hundred yards, but I got a couple hundred yards on a little narrow ridge within, uh, he was probably 50, 60 yards of bedding down. But that was just because of, I've hunted that farm for 30 years. You know what I mean? If I would have been like someplace I didn't know, I would have never known that ridge without walking it out, and you know, that that ridge bottled down there and everything. And, and I ended up, I had to run a rope from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill to drag my fat ass up the hill. <laughs> and uh, because it's just straight up and down. I mean, you go two steps forward and slide and got up there and got up that morning. And when he came in, like I said, I get all these pictures of him at 8 o'clock in the morning just sticking his nose out at me in the daylight. And when he come in, he I never killed a buck that was so at ease in his environment. He just knew there wasn't nothing there to fear. And when he come in, his tail was a wagon you know he was he would lick around on a on some leaves and stuff and come and like i said just totally unsuspected that that would ever happen and that's the only advice i could give you as far as hunting them in the morning like if you if you know where they're at when it gets daylight that's a bit but around here it's hard to know that you, you you'll go through the woods a lot of times and hurt yourself in the morning more than you help you know because you're just bumping them off and what about you, Heath, over the years so, down uh, here? Traditionally, like, kind of like Jake said, on the uh, northeast slopes, that's traditionally. But what I found is the more you, depends on what time of year it is, if it's early season, um, you got to get out there and put boots on the ground to find them. Uh, they'll switch, they'll uh, adjust, they'll move to food. So I found a lot of them sometimes on the south-facing slopes, uh, on little uh, finger ridges and stuff like that, close to acorn flats. And what I found is, too, is they got, you would think, oh, they're not going to have the wind advantage there. Well, they do, because as soon as that sun pops up over the horizon, the thermals hit that hillside, and they're catching everything coming up to them. So it's a thermal bed, I guess you could say, that's positioned close to food. So if you find the food, depends on what the pressure is, too, usually they're within a few hundred yards of that, and you can find them. But sometimes if the pressure's on, um, you just got to go look. Um, you can't just say, oh, I know he's going to be there. In my opinion, he's going to be here because this sets up perfect for him. Well, it doesn't mean that. He could be, you know, 100 yards off that food on one of these little knolls, a little high spot right over a ditch, overlooking and catching all the thermals. So it just depends. 
Uh, you got to scout it to figure it out. Figure that out, and it changes from year to year. You could have these white oaks producing acorns one year, and the next year they're not producing. So he, he has no reason to be there. And uh, he's headed down to a crop field over here, so he would be positioned up perfect for this northeast slope uh, and headed down that way. It just depends, in my experience. He's got a if, question. If you have the four or five fingerlings coming down, steep and all that, and say the deer's bedding before daylight, you had a super, super calm night, do you think, from, think the deer's more looking for a uh, real thick area? To bed in, or do you think they're still going for a visual advantage? If they're the thermal, you know, the sun's not come up yet, not pulling thermal. Man, this stuff. I, I I'll jump right. in. I think this stuff changes so much, and there's so many. I find that when I talk to people, there's there's too much of trying to figure out why things happen. Like it's like it's concerning yourself with the reason of. Why do deer eat eat, eat or eat acorns? I, you know, okay, they need fat in their diet. I don't. But who who really cares? Who? Why do we care why they eat or acorns? If you go find the acorns, you're gonna find the deer. And if they're not eating the acorn, like if, if it's not a bumper crop or they're not dropping, like they're eating something else, you gotta find that. I I take the bedding thing on the same on the same level as that like i don't concern myself i i guess it helps a little bit to know how deer like get away from predators and what they tend to do but i've seen you know and i've i mean there's guys that have hunted a lot longer than me but being a, a being particularly like having killed a lot of deer very close to their beds uh just bedding down um it's always so, so it's always so different I, i've i've killed deer in bedding areas that you probably would you you no, a deer would never bed there i just last year couldn't get a deer killed because he was bedding in a hay strip like and that's where he was living he was bedding in a hay strip and then heading out to crop and then coming back to bed in the hay strip like no like even on any wind there was no freaking advantage he couldn't see a goddamn thing he was a giant, a mega giant. Like I mean, he was just—he was—he was a smart cat, and he knew that being out there, nothing could touch him. Like so, I've—I've I've ran into bucks that were bedded right next to homesteads, like right next to houses that everybody drives by. I seen a buck this last season. This last season, two days left, was bedded 15 yards from the four lane, 15 yards, and 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 it's because like you know these deer. There's no wind advantage there. There was no, now this is, these are different situations. These are different hill, you know. When I was hunting Ohio this past, this past year, first time out here, you know, so this is, take this, this is a newcomer coming into the ground. My one mission was to find deer. So, so I got out and I freaking walked and started looking for deer. And I found deer and like a, a really good point that Nathan made, I found so many spots Actually, I found one spot in particular that I was literally foaming at the mouth to hunt, and I'm like, oh, man, if I could get here in the morning, I, I'll probably kill something. Like, it just looked, it set up just like everything I've ever seen. It was this, It was actually three-quarters up a ridge. It was this little shelf that flattened out, and this buck had it shredded. I mean, and he, I knew he was, I probably kicked him off that ridge on the way up there, all the freaking noise I was making on that shale rock bullshit. And... um I probably kicked him off there, but I knew if I could get there, and I, I looked at it, I was like, there's absolutely no way I will get here in the morning. Like, I, I'll probably freaking fall off this cliff, you know? I mean, it was so, 
I couldn't do it in the morning, so I, I bypassed that spot. I got as close to there as I could, and I was way too low, and thermal screwed me. But, like, I was just setting out to find deer and to find spots, find food, just just look at the sign, look at what was going on in that in that particular instance. So I, I would urge, I would urge people to just do their diligence scouting and. Um, you can start, yes, those things are, will definitely help you. Like we even, you guys talked about a, uh, you know, if you can get, you look at, I look at these hills out here, and like there's no way to tell which ridges have oaks by looking at a freaking topo. I mean, if you, if you can, I'd like to know that. But like, you know, you don't, you don't know that. You got to go check it out. You got to go, you know, so a lot of the thing, a lot of this stuff is just putting in the time and effort to, to literally get there and see what's going on because it, it's, it's just so different all the time. Um, that's, I don't even know if that helps you in any way, but that, that's kind of how I look at it. Because um, I tend to overcomplicate things. If I start looking for one particular scenario and I'm overlooking everything else, and I'll get hung up on that. And I just start like gravitating toward looking in, oh, this area because it looks like this, or, or that one because uh, you know they're supposed to be doing this. And um, it just doesn't. I'll play off that real quick, just the standpoints like I'm not, I don't hunt the mountains nearly as much as I do, you know, the flatland. Like I hunt a little bit in Western North Carolina, a little bit in Virginia, and I do my best to avoid steep terrain <laughs> the best I can. I, I just, I don't do as well in it. Um, but when I approach those areas, I approach them the same way I do flatland. I look for edge, I look for thick. So like when I'm in the mountains, I'm looking for benches and laurel usually if there's laurel there. If it's not, then like in Western North Carolina, I look for old cutovers. If I can find an old cutover that's super deep, you know, I'm not, I'm not good enough at, at, you know, being a mountain guy to be able to say, oh, you know, this slope and this wind, and I can pre-predict him being here and being there. But what I can do is I can identify, hey, there's a whole bunch of edge right here. It's far away from access. I know that my predominant wind that time of year is going to come this direction. You know, then I can boots on the ground and get in there and identify, oh man, you know, I can walk the edge of that, that clear cut or the edge of that laurel thicket and, you know, work around that bench and identify, hey, he's coming in this way, he's going out this way, a lot like Cody did in, o in Ohio when he got here. And, and be like, you know, get a pretty good idea of the way I'm going to attack that piece. You know, you don't have to be a wizard, you know, you just use what you know. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think we covered that pretty good. Who who asked that one? Oh, it's man. Double up, two in a row. Well, give it to your buddy. I have four or five on my same hand right now. Looks like. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, this is this is an interesting one. And while we're on the mountain topic, Nathan, you might be able to to, to put some good stuff to this, but I'll give my my take on. It. So, all right. So this is this is. Re there's two questions. It might even be the same guy. Who knows? There's two questions, but one is revolving around mountain bucks at high elevation, not using the same beds, and then it also says playing the wind is hard because if you if you because uh, if you're dropping down the ridge, the wind swirls, which is a very good point. I mean, so I court like when I came here or when I go to a place with 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 a lot of like varying you know elevation. I try and take what I experience in the Midwest on that smaller scale and apply it to the to the bigger. So that was my biggest, I will say that was my biggest thing to overcome when I got here was the thermals. Because it's happening on such a bigger scale. Now in Iowa where I'm at, 
it's bluff country. So we do have some pretty steep bluffs and they do do some, the thermals does some just gnarly shit. And honestly, my majority, like the way I, I, the way I navigate that is I tend to stay out of those bottoms in the evenings, which is sort of, and I tend to try and hunt them in the morning when I'll get a thermal lift, you know, if I need to. But even then it's like, it's like Russian roulette. Down, like in Iowa, when you're in that bluff country or in Wisconsin, if that wind has any sort of power to it, that those thermals are doing some just crazy stuff. Like I've seen them, you know, I got the story that I tell all the time about throwing the milkweed in it, and I was hunting this valley and it was an old service road and it was just this big, steep, two huge bluffs alongside of me. And I had the perfect wind going right down that valley and I was hunting a trail that was upwind to me that was perfect, you know, 20 yard. I had a good buck come through there and he cracked me instantly. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Well, I'm like, is my, what the hell is my wind right? So I dropped the milkweed and it took off. Just, you know, the, the draw just pulled it back down. And I'm like, man, I'm, I don't get it. I'm invincible. And then as I'm thinking that, I seen it do a big swoop and it came and it pulled all the way up the road. So I was in the crack. Like the thermals were taken over because of that crack. And then as soon as somehow that scent was escaping that, that, that like vortex there, and then everything on the right side of the draw was funneling all the way up and it was following the road. And it literally, as the road bended or as the road bent, I could see like, you know, it, like it was just, it was just moving, you know, you could see stuff. So I got screwed, you know, and now then I ended up hunting that same area one year later, um, on the complete opposite wind that you would think was wrong i got on the other side of the trail and i hunted that backdraft and i ended up killing a deer there so like a, a lot of that is learning too it's learning an area so many different things happen to affect thermals water will pull thermals you know uh like deep cracks will pull thermals like any you know as the air is heating up they're going to rise as it's cooling down they're going to fall but but things will change it I shot a buck three years ago, completely downwind, but there was a little crack in the field, and I bang, and, and the wind was minimal. It was one of those three, four mile an hour wind days, and that buck came out at last light, and I could feel the wind on the back of my neck, and I was hoping it would work, and it did, um, but my wind, it was just so light that it was drifting down, and as it was falling to the ground, it just started to, this draw just started to take it, like, and it just started slowly, and, it, and I ended up being just able to cut this scrape where he was coming to and he got killed. So, so I think with, so I, I apply those to here in a bigger scale. It's very hard to get in these big cross sections in these, you know, giant elevation. Like when I was here this past year, I was seeing some crazy swirlage. So I was just, honestly, like my resort was to stay higher up on the shelves. Um, and, and, you know, do what I could to avoid that, but also learn, learn that draw. I'd say that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from Heath is, uh, to, it's kind of a goal of mine is wind mapping some of these locations or systems in the hills um basically when you're in there in the winter noting okay the wind's out of the north today at five but here's what it's doing yeah. in general in the system that does really help and then i have found uh some areas where i can only hunt it it tends to be under eight miles an hour um where if it gets really windy let's say around the 10 mark it just seems to bounce and swirl but it, it kind of comes down to spending some time there, uh, and I bet Nathan and Heath would, would, would know more. They've spent way more time in these hills, but sometimes that is experience learned. Sure. Well, um, like me, I mean, I always paid attention to wind. I learned 
early on in my hunting career that you know you got to be downwind of the whitetail and uh, they use the wind to their advantage. I didn't get real specific into it until I started talking to Cody and Andre. So it went from okay, what's the wind direction? It went to where is it going to be an overcast day or is it going to be a, high, a bright sunny day? How many miles an hour is the wind going to be? Is it going to be a calm, you know, two or three mile an hour? Is it going to be eight to ten? Is it going to be fifteen to twenty? And when I heard them talking about that, wheels started turning and it opened me up to a lot more huntable places in the woods because all that matters. So I not only look at, okay, it's going to be a southwest wind. Well, is it going to be overcast? Is it going to be sunny? How many knots is it going to be? Is it going to stay like that if I'm hunting the evening? Is the wind going to stay constant? You know, is it going to be staying at 15 mile an hour up until an hour or two after dark? Or is it 15 mile an hour and then it slowly decreases at closing time to nothing? Because that completely changes everything and that's where you throw in thermals. And it helped me, it, it took me over that next step um, when I started hearing that from them and then started applying it myself. So, Yeah, like, I think we started first fooling with wind. The guys I was hunting with, bow hunting with around here in like probably late 80s, early 90s, we'd taken we'd take and tie a piece of thread to our hat. And you just put the, on the hat bill, you put the thread up there and then when you sit in the stand and you'd, you'd look and yeah, I'm good or whatever. But what you get a lot of around here, and I didn't really start to, I mean, you know, you'd throw up a milkweed or something before you went in the woods, but what I didn't really, just the last few years has opened my eyes to the thermals around here. Because you watch this stuff on TV and you see a guy, he's sitting in a tree stand and, uh, you know, he gets in there at 3 o'clock and everything's cool. And at 5 o'clock he's like, my wind's changed. I'm getting down. I'm going up. You do that here, you're crazy. I mean, well, you got two days off work, you're hunting, you get in a tree stand and went. It's swirl at five minutes, it might be back the way it was. You know, just the swirling winds and stuff. And and just checking it with that scent bottle, uh, you know, once from going from the string on the hat to the puffer. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm the world's worst to sit there and puff. Yeah, puff shit. Puff. Ah! You know, you put the stupid thing away. That that th- that milkweed and that little thing has taught me so much. Because I've sat there and I've, I've like, you puff it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's perfect. And then you drop that piece of milkweed and you watch that milkweed get Hold right to where you couldn't see the thing. And then yeah. start dancing and then go up, up the hill. And you're just like, so now I'm, I'm going. It just following, you know. But you put a lot. You got to put. I'm not saying don't hunt the wind. You got to. But when you're out west, a lot of times it's the same wind for a couple days, and you can predict. Around here, you know, if that wind switches when the sun starts going down, just chill out for a little bit. It may go right back the way you want it. You know, don't get out of stand and abort the mission. Uh, You know, drop that milkweed, and maybe then you know, okay, I'm on the verge. It's right there. If he does come in, I'm going to have to bust him here before he gets here. Yeah, you know? it, it's oh. using that information to better game plan because, I mean, I was just talking with somebody about this. Um, maybe it was at the last show. And we were talking about getting – it was getting deeper into – oh, it was Garrett. So there's a perfect example of, like, using that to your advantage but not going overboard. He was hunting a spot, and he ended up checking the wind. And then that gave him, or he ended up dropping milkweed. The wind did switch on him. He was still in a good spot, but that told him he had to shoot that deer at 6 o'clock versus letting him come to the lane he had originally planned to because if he would have let him get a little far, he would have been done. But had he not dropped that, he was planning on letting the deer come all the way in, work out, 
And I've always been an advocate of like shoot them as soon as you can. But um, but that right there, like it's it's not all about like you said, you know, you don't have to go to the extreme and abort the mission, you know, instantaneously. But that's where too, this stuff is just nuts. And when you start to when you start to take into account the small details, like like Heath was talking about, that's when you can really get dangerous. Like when you understand that stuff, then you combine that with a certain spot that you've hunted before or not hunted before, or you know what to look for. It's just like manipulating, you know, these areas that you scout and find. Like to do that and to manipulate an area, you need to understand all those little things. Like, or anybody can go find a good area set up in there and you know let's say you know they just happen to pick the right wind the buck comes in and they shoot him and they get a good buck but to consistently do that year in year out five years 10 years 15 years 20 years like that shit takes figuring it out you know there's a lot of guys out there with one two big deer but when you start to see guys like heath that every year like those pieces of information become so valuable and they go into the thought process every single day not just like oh yeah this wind looks good so that's when you start getting crazy results um and and it took me for years i'd find these awesome spots and i you know and this i was always too young too proud to ask for help you know and i'm and i'm i'd find these cool spots and i'd go and i'd screw the deer up i'd bump them out of there they'd be gone and i've always had the kind i'd always had the 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 mentality like oh screw it i'll find another deer and then I'd go hunt my ass off. I find another deer. I'd miss him. I'd go hunt my ass off. You know, like that. That was I was creating opportunities so much, and I wasn't capitalized on them. And it's because I wasn't looking into the picture all the way. Like I wasn't. I didn't have those little key items that took me years and years to learn. Like not only that, you start getting to the point where you have 20, 30 deer on the wall. The, the knowledge you gain just from witnessing all those all those occurrences like think of all the deer that you shot Heath all those times all those times you drew on a deer all those setups all those wind directions all those thermals you know every it dude that shit just goes in the Rolodex and it just it just builds up and builds up and builds up and you start to apply those no matter where you are and you know no matter what terrain and you can take I take pieces of I take pieces of Wisconsin and I and I apply them to Illinois. They don't all work, but you know it's they're all whitetails. So um, it's just a it's a really cool. It, you can get lost in thermals, but anybody who's not paying attention to thermals or wind, it just it goes again. Like just start start watching it, and you'll be surprised what you learn. Well, there you have it. A great example of the discussions that we can get into at the road show and the information that you can gain as an attendee. I look forward to seeing you, and remember, stay mobile. See you next time.